I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash achieve today. Since 2013, Bombas has donated over 100 million socks, underwear, and T-shirts to those facing homelessness. If we counted those on air, this ad would last over 1,157 days. But if we counted the time it takes to make a donation possible, it would take just a few clicks. Because every time you make a purchase, Bombas donates an item to someone who needs it. Go to bombas.com slash ACAST and use code ACAST for 20% off your first purchase. That's bombas.com slash ACAST, code ACAST. Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here. And it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt-free. Hello, fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan-crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com. Team Human is ad-free and supported entirely by teammates like Christine Van Luck, Laurie Xcast, William Wood, Will Hayward, Kim Schlesinger, and hopefully you. Just go to teamhuman.fm and click on support to get access to our Discord, monthly Team Human salons, free links to my paywalled medium pieces, access to the Rushkoff archives, and lots of other team-only perks. Thanks for being on Team Human. You're on Team Human, conscious intervention in the machine. And not just the machines of technology or artificial intelligence, but the machines of economics, social institutions, underlying assumptions, and other methods and mindsets we take for granted. The first step toward reclaiming our humanity is to denaturalize systems of power. And we do that by forging solidarity here on the ground with the others. I'm Douglas Rushkoff, and I'm on Team Human. Playing for Team Human today, political thinker, organizer, author, and the writer behind The Connector on Substack, my friend Mika Sifri. When we don't have structures, collective structures, that help channel and focus and sustain our political engagement, then sure, you know, in a hyper-capitalist society, we're going to end up, every problem is a problem you have to solve individually. Mika will be helping us evaluate just how directly we need to be involved in political activism to keep democracy sustainable. It's time to intervene on behalf of people. I'm Douglas Rushkoff, and you're on Team Human. Usually I uh, speak these monologues and then adapt them into media pieces that I post, usually around the same time as the uh, as the show. And And this time I actually wrote the thing first but um i kind of like it 
didn't like it like I wrote it. So I'm actually gonna gonna read it to you. It's it's a piece I just popped up on on Medium uh, called Magic is Real. How the universe winked at me and why I think it means we will be okay. So sometimes, particularly when things look hopeless, a little magic is all we need to remember that amazingly improbable things really do happen and are often connected with our own thoughts and desires. They almost never happen completely intentionally. I don't mean we can just wish for something we want and get it. But sometimes the universe seems to offer a little wink that it is capable of responding playfully yet quite convincingly to our actions as if to remind us that someone or something is listening. I have always been somewhat of a cynic, but I became convinced that this was actually true back in the late 90s. I had won a Fulbright to travel to New Zealand and work on the changing shape of narrative. I was invited to give a talk about digital technology and the future of storytelling as part of the opening day ceremonies for the Te Papa Tangarewa Museum. It was a great honor and about half the hundred or so people in attendance were Maori, the indigenous Polynesian people of New Zealand. And if you know anything about Maori culture, you would probably be as intimidated as I was at the prospect of trying to say anything of value about storytelling to people who had preserved a civilization as rich as theirs through song, dance, poetry, storytelling, and chants. But they were extraordinarily welcoming. They even conducted a big welcoming ceremony, which actually put me at ease. So I I went for it. And I was on stage explaining how interactivity introduces a new dimension to storytelling and why, as a theater maker, I felt comfortable migrating to the digital realm. I wanted to show how breaking the fourth wall created a wonderful, if uncomfortable, tension between the performer and the audience. So I remember I was saying, now I want you to feel in your bodies how the room changes when I move my body through the proscenium arch between the stage and the audience. It's magical. And I I put my hands up in front of me and said, watch this as I moved forward. And then just as my palms passed through the fourth wall, the lights went out, fire alarms in the building went off and red emergency lights came on. The Maori started applauding and then everyone got up and left the building as we were instructed by a voice over the public address system. And When we got outside, some of the Maori started hugging me. Wonderful demonstration, one of them said. Brilliant how you did that, another said. You showed what you were saying. And I insisted that I hadn't actually done anything, that it was pure coincidence. And an old man put his forehead against my forehead, his nose against my nose, and he smiled and said, coincidence is the skill of a great storyteller. Half of me thought that the Maori did it, that they had some indigenous magic they were employing on my behalf as a way of supporting my journey or making me take my own words more seriously. But I thought I never really spoke about it until maybe 10 years later when I was teaching a class in interactive media theory at the New School. 
I was again trying to explain the way that interactive technology offers an opening of possibility, that feedback loops can collapse, cause an effect in interesting ways. So I told them the story about the museum and the Maori and the fire alarms, but at least a few of them were unconvinced. They didn't seem to understand what I was getting at. It, it was a coincidence. So one of them remarked, and there had been a little fly buzzing around the room for the past hour, annoying the whole class. So I said, well, it would be like me making my fingers into a little gun, which I did, then pointing at the fly, which I did, and then pretending to shoot it out of the air. And at precisely the moment I pulled the trigger on my little pretend handgun, the fly just fell to the floor, just like that. You killed it, one student shouted, and then everyone gathered around the fallen bug, and it was motionless. Then it wriggled a little bit, recovered, and took off. Okay, so what happened there? Honestly, I can't tell you. I'm sure there's some students who still occasionally remind each other, remember the day Roshkov shot that fly out of the air? I know I do. And why did that magic moment only happen after I invoked the prior time that something magical had happened in my life? Moreover, why am I invoking both of those prior instances now? Am I trying to precipitate a third? If I am, it's in the hope of sharing the magic with you. We are all going through a rather dark moment, and sometimes it feels as if our future options are quite limited. I assure you they are not, at least if we don't measure them by the metrics of the closed-minded utilitarian cynicism that got us in this mess. No, our collective future may actually be depending on our willingness to play together and to accept the possibility of the impossible. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me, because you didn't use LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates, like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash achieve today. Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here. And it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt-free. Hello, fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan-crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello, Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com. Thanks for being on Team Human today. I uh, just this morning actually called a uh, special friend of mine to come talk to me. I was feeling really weird about about politics and Biden and Trump and all the stuff that's going on and the state of the union address. And I mean, I'm, I'm so sick of so much of it. And I feel like I'm doing so much more good engaging with people in my town and around me and through media, whatever the, the, the people in my life, 
um, and and working on change in in other ways. But then I get these pangs of guilt that wait a minute, I'm not really involved in my local politics. I haven't been keeping up. I didn't watch CNN or MSNBC or anything in a week, so I don't even know. I mean, my gosh, I'm not plugged into the the moment to moment pulse of politics. So I call Mika Sifri at times like this. He's a super smart friend of mine for the past gosh, 20, 30 years at least. Uh, he does a, uh, a substack called The Connector. He started the Personal Democracy Forum at a place called Civic Hall, where I used to do a lot of live Team Human events. And he's a, um, a, a terrific thinker and a, a, a steady uh, source of, of not just wisdom, but uh, stability and in crazy times. So I hope you uh, enjoy him and are as hopefully settled uh, by him as I am. Here's my good friend, Mika Sifri. So hi, Mika. Hey, Doug. How are you? Fine. I'm glad you're a uh, my local local friend. You're also my non-local friend. And there's, you know, I know you institutionally and internetly and other ways, but I'm glad I know you to live in the same town is fun. It is. Yeah. It yeah. is. Especially it... these days when when uh, all of us seem to be spending more time close to home than we used to. Yeah. Right? Yeah. I mean, and part that's part of what I wanted to ask you about is, it, and it's not necessarily to use you as a, a rabbinical or ethical authority, but more of a, a sounding board. What's on your mind? Well, I stopped... Looking at Twitter, okay, a month or two ago, yeah, um, at least for very long. Occasionally, because I'll, I'll post, you know, a link to something I've I've published, and then just see if people are talked about it or are talking to me directly about something or want me to repost something of theirs. But I don't look at the stuff that comes in, which always ends up being some sort of inflammatory and upsetting political conversation. Something mm. eventually gets me upset each time I go. And and so I stopped because I don't want to see this or that. And then it initiated a thought process about, well, how much am I obligated to take part in the, uh, what, what, I don't know what to call it, the political sphere you know, I will vote for whoever's the nicest, best, most reasonable person. I'll give money if I'm asked to something, but, and I will engage locally mm. with, so I feel like on a certain level, I give up, yeah. you know, I, I don't know. I just don't know. I remember when I got called to comment on Biden's Afghan withdrawal strategy. Uh-huh. And you, as a foreign policy expert, had... Right. I'm a digital <laughs> dude. I'm a cyber boy. Okay. I know about hacker culture and psychedelics and, uh -huh. and economics, even. Right. I learned about that and medievalism. I know there's a lot of... The, I know nothing. And what, do I even, as an informed citizen, do I have to have an opinion on it? I don't think so. There, I have to believe that someone somewhere is doing the best they can, and I don't want to surrender my agency to neoliberalism either. And I know Biden is still part of whatever that Clintonian neoliberal, you know, thing on a certain level that that that, that I can't just say, oh, Trump bad, Democrats good. You know, I yeah. can't go there either. But 
I'm doing work. I'm doing work. That I'm helping people. I'm and politics feels like what a the drag. fuck? Yeah. yeah, yeah. It feels like a drag. Sure. So I guess I'm wondering: Am I? A, I would be so much happier not worrying about it. Ah, well, you know, <laughs> there's a lot. There's a lot to unpack yeah. there. Um, you know. Polit- you may not want to care about politics, but politics still cares about you. You know, like even if you were a hermit on a hill, uh, it's going to affect you. You know, there's no there's no uh, sanctuary where right. um, you know what's going on in the world doesn't also, in some way, impinge on your life, either in good or bad ways. So, like it or not, we're stuck having to, you know, engage or at least realize it's affecting us and then what? I get why it feels like a drag. I mean, you know, we're coming off of a way, a period where millions of people were politically engaged at a level that for most of them was either new or hadn't been at that level in a long time. And for many people, probably, you know, the best majority of the people who who listen here um it was trump's election that was a huge shock um they you know it really felt like wait a break with the past that seemed at least surprising if not hugely scary Mm -hmm. and a lot of people got swept into a, a period of intense engagement and I would say a lot of that was good, um, you know, for many people to wake up and and see that they had more agency than they were using. Right. There's a lot of latent power that people have mm-hmm. that they rarely tap into, especially uh, at the level of collective action. So for from 2017 to 2020, a lot of people pushed themselves way beyond their norm. The main goal was to push, you know, to, to try and block and ultimately push back what Trump's election represented. Um, so, and then comes COVID, right? In the, in yeah. the last year of that, that wave and completely, completely flattens everybody's worlds. And yet people kept pushing, you know, there was that tremendous wave of, of activism after George, George Floyd, mm-hmm. um, and culminating in the 2020 election with the defeat of Trump. And in the middle of COVID crisis and, and huge disruptions to people's lives in all kinds of ways, right? I mean, many frontline workers being pushed to do things way beyond the scope of their, yeah. you know, their jobs. Parents suddenly, you know, having to run school at home. I mean, you name it. There's so many stresses, and we're still recovering from that. But activism is cyclical. It's not something that people stay at a high pitch all the time. It's just hard to do that. Um, If you look at the anti-war movement and the civil rights movement of the 1960s, um, there's this big crash right around 1970 or so. Mm -hmm. And it's not that the war in Vietnam was ended— Right. Or that the civil rights revolution was completed, though some big changes did get legislated. It's that people were exhausted. Number one, you can't live at this fever pitch continuously. Life has to have some degree of balance. The second thing is 
And I think this is related to how we get involved in political action is, um, is it willy-nilly or is it part of a structure? Is it part of a strategy? Right. Are you just sort of shooting from the hip emotionally at whatever target is got your goat that day? Um, and a lot of people do that. There's a lot of people for whom responding to the political moment is an emotional choice. Um, some obnoxious thing that some member of Congress said pissed me off so much I'm going to donate to their opponent. Right. Whether or not that donation is actually strategically useful, like all the people who gave money to the guy who ran against Marjorie Taylor Greene. Right. You know, he raised $15 million. It was hopeless. It was a huge boondoggle for a few political consultants who knew very well he had no chance of winning, and they paid themselves nicely uh, for extracting money from, you know, gullible liberals who were just pissed at her. So there's a lot of emotional, um, just poorly uh, aimed kind of political behavior. And that's because most of us don't live inside of any kind of organizational structure that would help us see what we're doing in some strategic mode. Now, in the, in the, in the grand scheme of things, that would be political parties would offer us that kind of structure. The Democratic Party, however, as everyone knows, is neither a party nor organized very well. So you don't get good cues right. from there. Um, and so there's a lot of of just shooting in every direction and often shooting at each other. <laughs> right. And that's the part that, you know, you find when you say go on Twitter and the next thing you know, people are shouting at you uh, or one-upping, you know, trying to, you know, build a following because they're, you know, beating up somebody else. And that just feels exhausting yeah. after a while. And I, I think that's a second piece of the problem. But don't forget the simple... Uh, role of exhaustion. I mean, after when the when the quote unquote '60s ended, what did a lot of burnt out uh, activists then do? They went back to the land. They you know started communes. They they you know went into personal journeys about right. their own health. They discovered things that they had been neglecting in their own lives. And it's a, f a moment where there was a lot of weird self help. Right. kinds of movements like est you know take right. off as well as genuine self-help people right. coming out and a lot of that their ended own, up you know, feeding into ronald reagan and and you know was, you know as as, as well, adam curtis's movies would show yeah. us you know feed it into the self-help selfishness individualism sure and right well again i i would say when we don't have structures collective structures that help channel and focus and sustain our political engagement, then sure, you know, in a hyper-capitalist society, we're going to end up, every problem is a problem you have to solve individually, yeah. right? Including that one. So, you know, I mean, the the biggest thing that happened then, which we're still suffering from, is the attack on unions um, and the way that belonging to a union became so much harder. Yeah. And when you don't grow up in that environment... You you know you you don't know what you're missing, but what you're missing is the sense that we're stronger when we actually are together. Um, you could say churches, synagogues, mosques also provide that experience for people, and in fact, many of them are the base of any kind of collective 
experience that people are sustaining over time. And I'd argue, you know, possibly towns. Well, yeah, I think that small towns absolutely have the potential to do that because... And neighborhoods inside big towns. Yes, but what you... What what what's missing there? I mean, yes, the the personal sort of pride in your town kind of thing uh, can, at its height, support a lot of mutual aid for sure. Right, or the lead in our water. But you're, now you're saying causes that are local, right? Right. Yeah, no question that rooting yourself in the things that are affecting you locally and trying to respond to those collectively is absolutely one way to sustain a sane level of engagement rather than an insane level. Right. And one that can trickle up. So I guess what I'm saying is that here I am with a bunch of people looking at issues I don't understand happening on a national giant level. I do understand a lot of what's happening on a local level, and I'm happy for our needs and causes to trickle up through representatives of my community to the higher forms, rather than me having to know whether the Great Wall of China is coming down or not. Sure, okay. So nobody can know everything about everything. You're always going to be proxying some of this to someone else you trust, or just saying, you know what? I don't really need to have an opinion on the Panama Canal, you know, or right. whatever. Uh, it's, it's let someone else worry about that problem. And I should, then we should be allowed to but, do that. But there's one other issue here, which I think is part of the malaise, which is, and it was true back around the late '60s, early '70s, as it feels, I think, true now, which is none of the levers that you're supposed to pull on seem to work. Um, so, uh, um, I'm thinking of this quote from, I think it was Daniel Berrigan. Uh, it's in my friend L.A. Kaufman's book about protest. And it goes something like, you know, we've tried everything. You know, we've tried uh, nonviolent civil disobedience and marching and protests and burning our draft cards and, you know, the the whole panoply of things. And we have not you know, we've had a million people, uh, you know, try to shut down the Pentagon, um, you know, mass arrests, and the machine just keeps going, and the war continues. And his complaint was basically, what happens when you do all the things you're supposed to do as a, you know, conscious participant in the, you know, you vote, you do... Uh, all the things you say, and it doesn't. The the lever doesn't seem to connect up to the power system, right? right? It operates on some other set of rules, and it's ignoring you. And I have two answers for that. The first one is, if you, the grand sweep of of protest activity suggests that we often don't know while we're doing it what the effect is of what we're doing. The anti-war movement of the 1960s and, and, and early 70s actually, we now know historically, really did help hasten the end of, of the Vietnam War. And even more importantly, kept Nixon and Kissinger from nuking Vietnam. Yeah. They were really thinking about it. And at the same time, that was the crest of the, the mass protests. And it scared the hell out of them. And we now know at least tempered 
you know, what they could have done even worse. Right. So you think that their fear of a domestic revolution in America by blacks and hippies or whoever helped prevent them from nuking Hanoi or whatever. Yes. And again, in the 1980s, when we had another giant mass movement, the nuclear disarmament movement, right? The freeze... Um, you know, a million people uh, on the lawn in Central Park in, in June of 1982. How come I didn't see you there, Doug? I was there, uh, and I wasn't even sure what it was, but I went. <laughs> and, um, and, and then the freeze kind of failed, right? Like Congress passed this bipartisan resolution calling on both sides to freeze right. building up their nuclear stockpiles. And then the movement sort of quieted, quieted down yeah. a lot. That was like salt too. And Reagan, and and Reagan yeah. kind of tempered his language, which was part of why the movement had gotten so big, because people were scared. This guy really seemed to think that we could win a nuclear war. Right. Now the historical record does show that negotiations over nukes in Europe were absolutely affected by the rise of the freeze movement, and that Reagan was forced to ultimately come to a deal with the with the Soviets. Uh, that absolutely took us back from the brink. But it was a few years later, and it wasn't like they made some big announcement and said, yay, thank you, nuclear freeze movement, for right. having you know, So it's really hard us. to get the, you don't get the, the dopamine endorphin rush of having succeeded you don't know. with your thing. It right. doesn't work like a movie. It, it's right. absolutely not like a movie. And then the other problem, which I think is the one we still have to wrestle with, is that we're, we are living in a very badly designed game. Um, in other words, the Constitution, which you know sets the rules for how our political process is supposed to work, um, isn't particularly well designed for the, the sense of, I'm actually voting for people who will then, you know, represent my interests, and then, you know, we'll actually get some power as a result and then see results, like compromises. Instead, we are now in what Lee Drutman, who's a a terrific political scientist, wrote a book called um, uh, Ending the Two-Party Doom Loop. But we're stuck in a two, what he calls the doom loop, which is that we have two parties that are, have more or less organized the country equally into different blocks, and that they're ideologically really distinct from each other in a way that was never true, you know, going back decades. We used to have conservative Democrats in the South. We used to have liberal Republicans in the North. Those people don't exist anymore. And we've self-sorted also residentially, right, the big sort. We're now kind of choosing to live you know, with people who think like us. and I know, um, they don't have to redline us anymore. You know, we, we were kind of doing it ourselves. Yeah, we find neighborhoods. I mean, people are using even the internet to find out where am I going to find, you know, Bernie-supporting vegetarian. Level, right? <laughs> and, and the thing is that this is not tenable. What you then get is each party is at war. Every election becomes existential, right? Which is, again, exhausting. Like, I can't... I know, you know, part of what you're experiencing is the backwash of getting 
dozens of emails every day telling you this is the most important, you know, you've got to give $27 now or the sky's going to fall. And, you know, the reason you get those emails is they generate money. Um, They cost less to produce than they bring in. So you're going to keep getting them, even if they're psychologically debilitating. Right. And Um, even if the long-term impact on my political availability to the causes in question is reduced. Yes. As long as the politicians authorizing those emails see them bringing in millions of dollars all the time, they will keep sending them. There's a disconnect here, right? Talk about levers that don't connect up, no one has managed to get the message through to them that they're hurting more than they're helping. Well, right, but it reached this weird peak where I think they did see it was when, when you know, Roe v. Wade got overturned and then the next day everyone's getting emails for money. I think there was the sense of, wait a minute, so this law got overturned and now it almost as if you're gleefully, it's, it's, I remember when I used to get things when, when it felt like, um, the the uh, Israeli uh, uh, and and Jewish fundraisers were like almost looking forward. Ah, oh, uh, 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 you know, a terrorist bomb went off in Tel Aviv. Send money today. Send money they're, today. They're waiting. You know, so so it's like mm. opportunistic uh, disaster mining. Well, there's no question that the it, this is part of the doom loop, and the reason they do it. Let's understand the game, the badly designed game that we're living in. The reason that they do it is in a artificially rigged to only allow two party system both parties are constantly maneuvering now to figure out how they get the trifecta in other words majority control of both chambers and the presidency or if you live in a state the governorship and both chambers of a state legislature that's the trifecta that's the only time that you can then enact the policies you want, like DeSantis in Florida is his big selling point to, you know, run for president is I'm not just talking about killing woke. I'm actually doing it. Right. Look what Getting I'm doing. Getting rid right? of uh, black history courses uh, and, and, and whatever. And, you know, uh, ripping apart, you know, progressive universities or whatever it is. He's going to be able to say, I did it because I've got the power to do it. So both parties right now are constantly maneuvering for the possible advantage of ultimately getting to that little majority. They're never going to get a two-thirds majority. You know, we're too evenly divided. So they get to 50% plus one. And so Biden briefly got to 50% plus one in Congress, and look at what he was able to pass. Actually, quite a lot. Yeah. Quite a lot. Maybe not all the things we wanted, but way more than anybody thought possible, and way more than Obama did, right. by the way. I know. Okay? Yeah. So the the trifecta is the one chance you get to sort of see the levers work. Then we've now we can ram everything through. The problem is, in this badly designed game, is that your... Uh, on the other hand, the other party is completely incentivized to just block everything. Like the, what what they do is say, we just have to stop them. We're going to you know sue. We're going to use whatever filibuster. We're going to use every uh, rule that we have, every technique that we have to try and show that the other party's failing because then right. the voters will reward us and then we'll have our little majority chance to, you know, ram our things through. That's why politics feels so horrible right now. Right. Because the two parties 
and by the way, take a step back. You look at the rest of the democratic world, we're the outlier. We're the only country that has this artificial two-party doom loop underway. Most, uh, you know, democracies in the world are multi-party systems. You typically have four to six parties, and they kind of all broker with each other all the time. Yeah, but you know, you it's can not still... As, it's not it's as not fraught. as 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 as... <sighs> Uh, inevitable, but you end up, you know, like you look at a place like Israel, and the only way they were able to get a friggin' majority was they went, they yes. went hard Israel writer than is we've ever been. A badly designed game in a different way, which is they don't have a constitution, so there are no rules to the how the game is supposed to be played. Number one, number two, they set the threshold for for getting into the parliament too low. So instead of a five or six party system, they have a fifteen party system, and it's a mess. Right, I but agree. Then, well, then go to England, and you have a prime minister no. for like seventy three minutes. And well, and, and, yes, but then the Conservative Party replaced her, and now this guy is governing. You have a three party system in England, right. and plus I guess the Baby Scottish yeah. National Party, and it's not that this solves everything. It's just that we have to look at the game. We're in a badly designed game. How do we get out of it? Right. And, and it's really hard to get out of it when the whoever win, whoever won at the current game are the people in power. So yes. it's really hard for them to say, oh, let's go to ranked voting. Or it's something like, <laughs> like that. Right. Any any change that we do is against the interests of the incumbents. They have to really right. be, you know, thinking about whether this change is going to help or hurt them. And that's Always the dilemma of right. someone who's trying to change right, which this. Which is why I would love, I mean, as would most people, would love for Biden to say, I'm not running again. Mm. You know, in other words, because then we'd all know he could just work on what he can work on. I feel, boy, wouldn't it be nice if there was some uh, great winning personality Right, but, person. you know, wish for the things that you can get, I think is what I would say. You know, the, the other thing that makes politics exhausting for people is a lack of of sense of proportion of what's possible and and very unrealistic expectations will often just lead to a sense of hopelessness i mean if you think I want martin sheen <laughs> you want the tv show version of yeah. politics yeah if only i mean i would just say recognize that we're in the doldrum time in a way Okay, it's winter for those of us up here right. in in, on, in the northern hemisphere. Right, um, we're bracing for the next wave. We're we're <laughs> yeah, the next wave of whatever, and we've just come off period of peak mobilization, and the it's natural for people, I think, to need to take a breather. Right, that the expectation that you're just going to keep at this high state high level of intensity politically is, I think, unrealistic. I also think that many of the organizations that have, you know, sort of benefited or, or harvested this wave of, of activism didn't do so all that well. And that, you know, if you want people to stay involved, you better make it a lot more fun to be yeah. involved than... Uh, you know, just get on this Zoom and, and, and you know, put headphones on and make, you know, phone calls to random strangers, which is phone banking, right? right? I mean, it it's necessary if you want to help a candidate win, right? Like, we live in a purplish state now. New York it used to be thought of as blue, but it's turning yeah. a little purplish in the last election. So if you want to change that, 
you've got to look at a specific congressional district, like the ones just to our north, and say, all right, what, what went wrong and what can we do better? And part of what we have to do better is mobilize people. And that does take, you know, talking to people and knocking on their doors and calling them on the phone and engaging with them. And the way professional political organizers tend to do that is a drag. It's asking people to do, you know, kind of grunt work of knocking on doors and... Right, even if you're doing, you know, the advanced canvassing techniques, it's still legwork. It's legwork, and it also feels divorced from the rest of life. If it's just about electing somebody to Congress, how does that also change my local, you know, how my life is locally or how my town is? To go back to your point about the local and the national? How do we connect these two things? And I've always thought that part of the answer has to be channel our resources in a different direction. Instead of giving money to candidates who will burn it on one thing, getting to election day. Once election day is over, they don't care. Like yeah. They still have money in their campaign bank account. That's money they wasted. They should have used it on their campaign. Instead, give the money to organizations that do year-round community organizing, okay? Well, it's a follow-through. It's It was, you know, my my and, and your original problem with Obama is that he was really good at organizing people on a campaign and really bad at organizing people to do civics. Well, he, well, even worse, he abandoned the army that had been right, built. which is why we did Occupy. And was, then Occupy sort of was a... Uh, a stab in the dark at a new model, which was untenable too. I mean, let's not forget that, you know, by the end of the second month of most of those occupations, the people who were running them were like, how are we going to keep this going into the winter? And right. and what know, is it for? And yeah. what, you know, and, and it's because we didn't, it was, it was the movement that he had created, but it was, it was both leaderless and leaderful as you would put yeah. it. And then the, the, the important, you know, so Occupy was 10 years ago and the important thing about Occupy were how many people first got a taste of direct democracy that felt good, mm -hmm. right? Um, you know, people fell in love at occupations and, and found their life partners and had transformative experiences that they haven't forgotten. And they thought, oh, well, maybe some other world is possible. I just experienced a taste of it. That's not a bad experience to have. And then many of those organizers after getting a breather, which they needed, went on to create new organizations. We've seen many of those organizations. The Sunrise Movement, uh, uh, for example, which went through its own sort of flowering and then plateauing, um, was built by people who had experienced the Occupy moment, and they thought, well, something about this we can replicate, and though we've got to make it more durable, right? And you could argue that the reason why Biden put so much money into climate mitigation, hundreds of billions now, which we're going to see the transformative effects of, um, is because of the Sunrise Movement, which elevated the Green New Deal into something that a lot of people rallied around. And it became something that Biden had had to negotiate with. You know, the most important thing that happened after Bernie closed his campaign down in the spring of 2020 were these policy task force 
task forces that the Biden campaign team built, and they invited all these Bernie and and also Elizabeth Warren supporters onto these task and that forces. That was part of the deal, though. And, and but for you know, uh, for Bernie to the, stop, the executive director of the Sunlight uh, Sunrise Movement was put on one of these task right. forces on environmental policy, and that's where the climate legislation comes from. Now, it's not a perfect straight line, and absolutely. Some things right. that the Sunrise kids really wanted, like a climate core, were abandoned. Right, but you could, but we could argue the fact that you or me or this listener or that one went to Sunrise rallies yep. or supported Sunrise in some way gave them some of the momentum sure. to make so, these changes. Right, so even though you pressing the button here can't quite see the lever move there because it moved a few years later. Right, and I don't hear about Sunrise anymore, and I'm like, oh, we failed. Well, right, but we didn't. Son, there was actually really uh, Will Lawrence and um, I'm forgetting the other person's name um, wrote a series of really interesting pieces. What why didn't Sunrise sustain itself? And there's a challenge with fast growth that happened there. In other words, they they built themselves to scale quickly around local chapters, um, which they called hubs. And the problem is that the national leadership, which by necessity, stayed relatively small, had to navigate the relationship between being the national voice and strategists for the whole movement and all these supposedly local autonomous hubs. And the, the difficulty became that these local hubs, some of them were more radical than others. So you had little flashpoints over a local Sunrise chapter taking a position that the national... Right movement felt was unhelpful. You also had a problem over who was getting paid and who was volunteer. Right. And so class, the the issue of who could afford to be an activist and then who was actually getting paid decently and who was just getting a lousy fellowship also arose internally. And and then also you've got to add the, the way that uh, George Floyd and the racial reckoning played out inside organizations suddenly, you know, feeling like, oh gosh, we've got a, we, we have organizational debt around how we have failed to address racism within our own organization. Uh, and all of these things, I think, combined to make running a national organization that was suddenly flooded with money. They had no shortage of money. Same thing happened to Black Lives Matter. But the money is a curse, not just a blessing. When you're suddenly in a position to move tens of millions of dollars around, and maybe two or three years ago you were living off of fumes, uh, it creates enormous internal stresses. So we've not yet figured out collectively how we design and build movements to scale that can then sustain themselves. It's messy as hell, and it's frustrating um, I know younger people who put their heart and soul into trying to get Bernie Sanders elected. And when Bernie, you know, basically gave up, he had to. And then, you know, now he's an insider, right? Like he's got a powerful position in the Senate, but he's not exactly, you know, leading revolution anymore. Right. Um, and if what you thought was you were going to get a revolution 
through one candidate, you know, talking revolution, well, mm, right. you know, sorry, at, didn't happen. At the same time, I don't want to give the listeners the false impression that this is the headspace, heart space, or activity space that I'm involved in mm. with the majority of my time. I'm not. And I'm that's not, okay because not, there's plenty of room. There's plenty of problems to go around, right? But you know what I mean. There, there are plenty of problems to go around. But and, and part of me feels like it is okay for 80, 90 percent of us to do what needs to be done as best we can, and surface when oh, sunrise is doing something in my town or Extinction Rebellion needs some support, or there's a, a candidate. Oh, oh so uh, you're, what's his, what's his name in uh, uh, Yonkers? Uh, sure. The, well, the fight we have underway in Yonkers is important yeah, locally. And, and, and our representative. Um, Jamal Bowman. Jamal. Yeah. Okay. Oh, Jamal. And you called me, Doug. Jamal, there's a new candidate. We got to do something. All right, I'll show up. Sure. You know, show up and give some money and help and, and, make, and make some calls and do that. But, but... I'm I'm trying to see whether it's okay when people are asking me about these about particularly about issues that they don't necessarily understand mm. and don't know if they have to understand them uh, th whether it's okay to tell people look you're walk you're working right now on trying to provide clean water to the people in the town where you live it's fine you're doing the work I think that's right, but I also think that the connective tissue that would make that local work ladder up, say, to a much better environmental policy by our state is we still need that. It is not everybody's job to solve how you do that, okay? What, again, to go back to the badly designed game issue, because I, I see this all the time in the disconnect between how effective you can feel doing something locally versus, you know, trying to level up to say state level or even regional, let alone national and how disconnected or, or unaffected right. that can feel. And plus the more effective we are locally, the less of a burden we put on state and national Sure, structures. but there are problems that you can't just solve locally, right? Like right, the water quality of, of the river that we both, you know, yeah. look, live along, the Hudson River, that's a regional problem, not a local problem. And a capitalism problem. When right. it was cheaper for GE to try to delay action for 40 years so the PCBs are under so much silt that now, oh, we can't dig it up or we'll create more damage. Right, right. And they had the power to get away with that for a very long time. And until we understand that we also have potential power and the, the, we, again, it's about investing right. organizations that do year round organizing. If you're, I, I would say this is a yes and. Okay, this is not an either or. Right. Yes, and show up at the Pete Seeger concert yeah. that where they're going up and down the river, and you know, right. to right. Clearwater would be a good example of a local activist, though he obviously had a huge, you know, platform. But when he organized buying that boat, you know, this river was completely polluted, and just the idea of going up and down the Hudson to educate people 
And people and might laugh build. at that, and it took ten or twenty years, yes. but it worked. It did. Now you can swim in this river, right? You know, if you choose. <laughs> I, I've done it. I've yeah, done it. I mean, I. I don't think I would drink the water, but yeah. but certainly skinning is right. swimming in this river now is possible, and it used to not be. So, the 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 difficulty I think also with trying to feel politically effective is just how much doom and gloom sells, and how much the people who are like just regularly bumming us out by telling us all is for naught, uh, you know, nothing will change in time, uh, that there's a market for that. And that also... And it's, and it's is a convincing a, story. I mean, I just yeah. wrote a piece that, 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 that hopefully is my monologue for this episode about um, magic being yeah. real. Yeah, I saw. Right? And, and I wasn't trying to say, oh, magical thing is going to solve us. But, you know, I, I'm, I'm suggesting that... You know, weird things happen. They do. And not only that, you can't always know if the seed you plant here is going to grow into a mighty oak or not. Like the right. the unpredictable effects of your actions. You know, we were talking before you started recording about your the teaching that you do. Right. Uh, at Queens College. And, you know, the thing about teaching is you're working with people at a very formative time in their lives, and you can't really know today which of your students 10 or 20 years from now is going to be the amazing, you know, uh, incredible, influential, you know, storyteller, change maker, whatever. Right. Uh, you know, it's pretty hard to know which it one is, it's going to be. especially, and most of them are coming because they want job-ready skills to go into media or technology, Fine. and I'm trying to give them, I'm trying to give them the tools they need to denaturalize uh, the systems of power that are accepted as conditions of nature. Yes, and they may very well, some of them, take that lesson really deeply, right. and 10, 20, 30 years later... You know, hopefully, while you can still know, <laughs> right? Um, you know that you'll be able to be like that was one of my students, and I've noticed over the years that you know people, for example, who teach political science or history or whatever, you know, every now and then they'll brag on a student of theirs who's who just got elected to Congress or something, and and they're like, yeah, I knew them when they were just starting out, right? Um, and so the the again, you know, again, the point of this is you can't always know. The obvious effects of your action, sure, it, it's a lot more satisfying to go, uh, you know, spend a day clearing, uh, you know, the, the, the invasive weed off the, <laughs> you know, along the path on the sawmill parkway where, you know, it's going to destroy all these healthy trees unless we humans, you know, put in a few hours of backbreaking work to clear this thing, right? And at the end of the day, it's kind of satisfying. You did do something helpful for the environment, um, and maybe you made a few friends along the way, and that's what will get you to come back and do it again. That kind of work is the most sustainable because it, it's immediately satisfying. Figuring out how to, you know, stop global warming at some, you know, global scale is not something you and I are going to, you know, manage to do on our own. And even building the structures for collective action at that scale, whether it's the, you know, the climate uh, convenings that happen regularly now, I mean, is beyond the can of most of us. But the reason why it feels like a drag is because we don't have 
the lower, you know, the low rungs on the ladder where it's easy for you to get involved and see how my local thing connected to something global. So you feel ineffective, you feel aimless, you feel like it's all for naught, and I should just hunker down and do my local thing. And I would just say, where we, what we're missing in our badly designed game are these intermediary connecting institutions called organizations that do year-round year organizing that would plug us in, help us see, oh, there's a bill that's moving through the Albany legislature right now uh, you know, that will actually do a lot about climate, and we need to keep pushing for that. And even though I can only influence you know, my elected assemblyman and my elected state senator, collectively, when we all do that across the state— those levers add up to something moving. Right. When we live in a game that is also designed by the incumbents to be hard to understand, that's the final challenge. They do a really good job of hiding the ball. They do. And it's to Who's the point responsible? where the day before I go in to vote and there's like two, you know, uh, 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 Amendments or measures. Yeah, and you on don't there. know anything and about it. I don't them. even know. It's like, oh, clean lighting. Right. You know, I'm like, clear sound. Should I vote good? for this? Do yeah. I? And basically, I'll call you or or, right. or, or the mayor, my mayor, uh, Nikki, uh, yeah. our mayor, to go, what is this? Do I do it? And then someone like you or she will say, well, actually, it's complicated. And I'm or, like, oh, great. So it's complicated. <laughs> Just yes or fucking but, no. But, but Douglas, there's one other thing about our, <laughs> the, the world we live in now that makes this harder for us than it might have been, you know, a couple of decades ago, which is the way that local media has been hollowed out, okay? So in the, in the glory days of, you know, mass media in America, there were local newspapers everywhere. And they, we now, many of us, live in functional news deserts. Right. right? And you know what, what a news what, desert is by and definition? And what counts as a local paper is actually a, a, a right-wing giant, you know, some Coke Sinclair, brothers. Yeah. Right. Okay. Corporation but that, with that like is three fixi- local articles on the cover that, of a, of a right. piece of crap. But that's a fixable problem, too. I mean, I remember when I, <laughs> when when the Twitter thing, the, the you know Musk took over Twitter yeah. and the great Twitter exodus happened, and you know a couple million people shifted over to Mastodon, right? And right, I, except I remember, for three or four journalists who are now well, doing the Twitter files. Everybody's as doing part of both. A, yeah. Everybody's doing both. It doesn't matter. And I remember I I got in touch with you and I was like, do you know how to set up a Mastodon server? Because yeah. you know, wouldn't it be interesting to try setting one up for our town? Yeah. Um, and you wisely were like, no, somebody who knows how to run those things should do it, not one of us. Um, because as we know, anytime you create any kind of uh, uh, instance for, you know, bulletin board, uh, uh, discord server, yeah. all these things require somebody to be the gardener, the moderator, the right. community. That's why Metafilter and, yeah. and Reddit still yeah. work. They work, well. but, but there is no Reddit for our town. Right. Um, not sure it would work either, but the, the point is one of the things that would help orient people so that they would know, well, how should I vote on that statewide, <laughs> you know, question on the ballot would be local media. And there is the, the I do see absolutely more now than a few years ago, more signs of local nonprofit websites where people are just going, 
I can do this. This isn't that hard. Um, it's not that expensive. Yeah, it is a job. It's true. And you've still got to get people to help pay for it. But, um, you know, we've got, uh, there's something called the Yonkers Ledger now. Uh, it's a one person operation um, in Nyack, which is just across the river from us. I just heard about a new, it's actually not that new, but I just heard about an interesting local online news site. I think that it, it isn't that hard to see. Oh, there's another one called The River, which is mostly covering north of here. Um, and they actually have uh, a staff and you can sign up and pay them $10 a month to help support them. Um, we have to decide that part of why everything feels disconnected and sucky is that parts of our infrastructure have been blown up, the news business being one, Facebook, et cetera, having, you know, done the most damage, and that if we right, want and quality... Craig and Craig, dear Craig. Dear Craig, yeah. giving away classified yeah. ads, though, God bless him, because yeah. th those should he's be trying, free. And he's those trying now to compensate for he's it with a lot of his money. He's donating lots of money. But that part of the answer is not to say, oh, it's always going to be like this, is to sort of recognize that a set of forces conspire to undermine a, a very critical piece of our community's infrastructure, which is local news. And that you would not be ignorant of what to do about issue X or, or question Y if we had decent local news. And that would be the job of the person, the, you know, they would be, we'd be paying right. them something so that they were helping keeping, keep us informed. And at the same time, in theory, that would help reduce the level of, of kind of aggravation we see on this, the anti-climate and anti-democratic yeah. side of this. Well, I, look, different problem, which is that, you know, the other side is also organized its media quite well. I mean, we are battered often by, you know, bullying right-wing media. We don't have as many equivalents on the left. Right, and we call it the other side, but the other side has some of those same points that our side is making about the sense of disconnection and the lack of logic, right. the, 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 the domination of neoliberalism and corporatism, mm -hmm. the use of technology to disconnect us from ourselves yep. and our yep. hearts and our emotions. Right. I mean, in terms of signal to noise, I mean, I feel like I hear, and I've told you about this too, I, when I heard the... The, the, the quasi-fascist Italian prime minister talk about the 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 how to how to reclaim the human mm. uh, among systems that are anti-human. She was basically quoting from Team Human, sure. Even though her agenda was 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 ultimately uh, right, a, a, right, neo right. Well, um, not don't take this too personally, but I would just say that Team Human is a great idea that actually needs to be blown up more if it's really going to have a serious to be impact. scaffolded yes. in something yes. rather than when it's just taken, the essence of Team Human can easily be transferred right. into a whole lot of different political agendas. It, yes, Bannon, which is part of it. Steve Bannon pitched Team Human yeah. on the war room. Yeah. What's the problem that? is is that for him to work it would have to be called team white human. Right. Um and you know thank thankfully uh you know why that's a bad idea and you wouldn't do it. But that's their project, right? Um is find the largest clump in this very fragmented world white christian nationalists 
um, and try and act as the home for for them. They're the most beleaguered feeling because they're the ones who have had more power than they deserve. And yeah, you're going to lose some power along the way as we rebalance things. Um, and resentment at that loss, impending or actual, is part of the engine of their movement. But yeah, if you're going to um, seriously try and engage people, you do have to talk about bringing back the human um, and connecting with people at that level is something any politician, if they're any good, uh, is going to have to talk about. Um, so I, it's troubling if the only people talking about it are the far right. I don't think that's the case. Right. But the we also, in America, live in an unequal media system where the loudest, well-organized megaphones, Fox News... Etc. Breitbart and so on are not that we do. The New York Times, which is mainstream media, the Washington Post, which is mainstream media, does not approach the information wars the same way that Fox and and Breitbart does. The Times thinks objectivity is the thing to deliver uh, rather than truth, um, and the uh, thing that the right is delivering is a version of of a truth. It's built on lies, but they're in, they have an ideological mission which is very different. And so we do not get the same kind of amplification for the ideas that we'd like to see amplified from, quote, mainstream corporate media that the right-wing media delivers to right-wing ideas. But what it really goes back to for me is this, this difference between the figure and the ground, that commercial, especially television media, is really good at focusing on a catastrophic figure, but really bad at engendering a conversation about the ground, yeah. the community. We can see the hero or the villain, but not all of us, yeah. not the real world, not the landscape, which is where we actually live. Yes, and it's a different conversation. Stories are, you know, we, we t they tend to need protagonists and antagonists, yeah. and that's inevitably going to foreground the figures more than the ground, it seems to me. I do think that to go back to try and sew this up on the problem of, of how do I engage politically and when politics feels too exhausting, is it okay to disengage, is that we also are not, generally speaking, getting from our media makers, our meaning makers, a coherent explanation of what's going on with politics and why does it feel frustrating. I do think it's important to remind people the well-intentioned people that I think are in this audience, that we've been part of movements that have dramatically improved life on this planet, um, whether those were movements to stop wars or movements to expand rights. And, you know, the just to give one example, you know, the, the trans and gay, uh, you know, activists who rioted at Stonewall, I mean, you and I can go down and see that place mm -hmm. were... The the yes, there were people before them too, but they were the the locus of a revolution which is still reverberating in the lives of everybody in terms of human possibility, in terms of expanding uh, the notion of equality to include all of us. Same with the the women's movement, um, which also in in to a large degree uh, uh, 
is rooted here. And which still can't and pass an equal rights amendment in America. Doesn't but. matter. It has changed culture right. tremendously. And so the, th- the point about political change is that it operates at deep levels where we our expectations about what is right, what is normal change. We're in a huge fight right now over that because there's a very big backlash happening. Very big. And the 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 brazenness of it has gotten worse, right? In that now, thanks to, you know, four years of the Orange Cheeto being in the White House, the the legitimization of what used to be marginal ideas and marginal ways of talking about people, it's become okay, right? The president has, the ex-president has dinner with an open Nazi and and we go on as if life, has, you know, is, oh, okay, that's just another day in America right. now. Right, and the use of uh, violence is normalized as well. Yeah, so this is very dangerous to be in this backlash period. Um, that doesn't mean we give up, but it does also suggest we have a challenge, which is, how does the still majority, we are, you know, more of us than of them when it comes to choices about whether we're going to choose democracy or fascism, there's still more of us, but we're divided. It's, not, it's hard for us to see ourselves as a majority. We're not shown the impact of our work very often. Right. You know? And we have to choose democracy in a democratic way. Yeah. Yeah. You know? <laughs> so it's, it's all very hard. And on a daily basis... You got to put food on the table, get the kids off to school and, and, you know, worry about your aging grandparents or whatever it may be. It's enervating to try and hold all of this together. So I would just say it's okay when, if you need a breather, to take the breather. It's also important to try and take the long view, which is change is not something that happens like, you know, buying a consumer product and getting immediate satisfaction. It often takes a long time, and consistent pushing. If you want to be involved in that, look for the others who are doing it and do it in concert. Build community organizations. Do not fall for the uh, one hero is going to save us kind of politics because you'll always be disappointed. You know, we fall in love with, you know, whether it's Obama or Bernie or whoever the next one is, and you're bound to be disappointed if that's your way of getting involved. And yeah, we got to rebuild some things that have been broken, like local media uh, or local gathering places, because that will restore a sense of I'm not alone. And now I understand where I fit into the somewhat larger picture. Only doing local... I think is is a little bit too, it's not enough. It will not add up to the thing you want unless we f- figure out how to build these intermediate structures. And we can do that. It's happening. Well, because most of us are going to operate on a local level. I mean, and Always. what you're asking for is for it to be scaffolded towards right. larger national things. And we can we can try to engender local activity that does it. But it doesn't mean that that a majority of people who are doing the local thing necessarily need to be uh, fully aware of how it fits together. It helps to know, I think, in order to stay in this for a lifetime it helps to know where your piece fits into the larger puzzle and that to me see marching yourself. with martin luther king today is why that black girl can go to what, this school that that these pieces add up and that if you're feeling dissociated from that it's because 
you're probably latched on to the wrong way of explaining. I think this. Or so, you're trying to do it on friggin' Twitter. Uh, yes. Right. Instead of in the world. So right. Twitter's really, I mean, I do think we all have permission to not do politics on Twitter, right? You, uh, I, I would say if you're just if you if you think that commenting on social media and sharing and posting is doing politics, then you're a hobbyist, not a real political organizer. What I do think the web is useful for the social web is discovering and supporting the others, whatever that may be, whatever that word may mean for you. Um, I would never give that up. The ability to find like-minded souls across the universe of possibility is a wonderful thing and you will feel supported by that. Mm -hmm. So don't give that up. But, uh, you know, sharing the latest meme or, you know, commenting on the, whoever said something stupid today. uh, No, no, that's just, that's at best it's entertainment. Um, but mostly it's a waste of time. Right. Mostly it's feeding the trolls one way or the other. <laughs> and Elon Musk. Yeah, right. <laughs> and, and his shareholders. Oh, God. Oh, God bless. Well, thank you, Mika, for, uh, for being fun, here in my, in my living room <laughs> and holding a microphone. And... Yeah. Well, it's always fun to talk with you, Doug. And, and um, you know, it's winter. Don't worry. Spring is coming. All right. <laughs> All right. But I'm still not going back on Twitter. I don't, want, I don't like reading it. Okay, love you. Love you too. And thank you for being on Team Human. Today's guest was Mika Sifri. You can read his work at The Connector on Substack. Team Human was produced by Joshua Chapdelin and edited by Luke Robert Mason. I'm Douglas Rushkoff, and you've been on Team Human, our last best hope for peeps. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic-butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. 
Did you know cats tend to hide symptoms of sickness and pain? I learned this the hard way after losing my cat, Gingy. So I created Pretty Litter, a health monitoring litter that helps detect early signs of illness by changing colors, saving you money and potentially your cat's life. Pretty Litter is veterinary and developed, and it's the easiest way to keep tabs on your fur baby's health right at home. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. When you make decisions for your company, you look for the no-brainers. And if you have a lot of mailing to do, stamps.com is the ultimate no-brainer. It streamlines your processes to make your business more efficient, which makes you less busy. Mail checks, invoices, legal documents, and everything you need to keep your business running with Stamps.com. Seamlessly connect with every major marketplace and shopping cart. Schedule package pickups and see your cheapest and fastest shipping options from different carriers. With rates up to 89% off USPS and UPS rates. And with the Stamps.com mobile app, you can take care of mailing and shipping wherever you are. Make the same no-brainer decision as over 1 million other businesses with Stamps.com. Sign up with code PROGRAM for a 4-week trial, plus free postage and a free digital scale. No long-term commitments or contracts. That's Stamps.com. Code PROGRAM.